So a landowner and a farmer made an agreement. The landowner said, I offer you this covenant. I would like for you to live here and farm my land. I would also ask that you give back a portion. The farmer agreed. Another landowner and another farmer made a similar agreement. However, in this case, the farmer came to the landowner and said, I have here a contract. There's a place for both of us to sign. You are agreeing to let me live here and farm your land, giving back a portion. The landowner agreed. Both farmers got lazy and eventually stopped planting crops. The landowner with a contract had the farmer removed from his property, never to return. He was really pretty glad to get rid of that lazy farmer. The first landowner, though, who was in a covenant relationship with his farmer said, I'm truly sorry to see you going hungry and also misenjoying some of your crops. So I hope you'll return to work soon for both our sakes. My only goal here is to illustrate some of the differences between a contract and a covenant. See, a contract is temporary by nature. When one person breaks the contract, it immediately becomes irrelevant, null and void, as if the agreement were never made. By contrast, covenants are permanent, being based on a promise from the one who offers it. The one who offers a covenant must forever stand ready to fulfill his part. And so one of the primary differences is that with a covenant, the offer stays on the table. Thankfully, our God is a God of covenants, not contracts. Amen? The Hebrew word translated as covenant is berith. It most literally means an agreement between two parties, but as with most Hebrew words, there's more to the picture. The word is also derived from a root word, which means to cut. Is it possible this is where we get the phrase to cut a deal? I don't know. But you can read in Genesis chapter 15 about the covenant God made with Abraham and how it involved a brutal scene of cutting animals in two. One cannot put an animal back together again that has been cut in half. And I know it sounds horrible to our Western ears, but the picture to be conveyed is that, is that of two parts, as if to say, this is your cut, this is my cut, and there's simply no way to nullify this agreement because the cut has already been made. This ceremony was literally enacted by God in Abraham's case, where animals were cut in two, and it was designed so that no one could forget the commitments that were being made, or somehow later say that the agreement was temporary. No, because the berith or covenant of God is always permanent. Again, you can read about this in Genesis chapter 15. Now, it is also important to understand the difference between a unilateral covenant and a bilateral covenant. God's covenant with Abraham and his descendants was unilateral meaning only God was required to keep the covenant. This is the amazing grace of which we often sing. Unilateral covenants are not even fair at all to the one who offers them, in this case, God. Thinking back to that original covenant with Abraham again, there was nothing for Abraham to do in order for God's covenant to be fulfilled. 
This is a unilateral covenant. On the other hand, God's covenant with Moses and the Hebrew people was bilateral, meaning there was God's part and there was the people's part. In other words, people could break this covenant, which would mean setting it aside for a time, resulting in a loss of benefits. If you want to see how that happens, repeatedly simply read the book of Judges, (laughs) where the people of God just kept breaking this Mosaic covenant bearing the consequences. Again, that's what happens with a bilateral covenant as opposed to a unilateral one. There are different types of covenants, but know this, our God is a covenant maker and a covenant keeper. During Old Testament times, God initiated at least five major covenants with mankind. Some of these covenants were unilateral, such as the Abrahamic covenant, and others were bilateral, such as the Mosaic covenant. Please take note that every single bilateral covenant was broken by mankind in one way or another. And even more importantly, know that every single unilateral covenant was kept perfectly by God and is still being kept. In truth, only the unilateral covenants ever worked out long term. Because while man can never be counted on, God always comes through. So, do any of God's covenants still apply to us here in this room today? To some degree, all of them do. But all of them are also swallowed up and fulfilled in the sixth major covenant, which is the new covenant. This is the covenant ushered in by Christ. If you had to guess, would you say this new covenant is bilateral and therefore doomed to failure, or unilateral and therefore kept by God regardless. Thankfully, the new covenant is unilateral, just like the Abrahamic covenant dependent completely upon God. In fact, the new covenant is actually a continuation and further development of the Abraham covenant, wherein our faith is counted to us as righteousness. Within this new covenant, as in God's covenant with Abraham, the only part we have to play is found in our faith to believe it, which really is the faith to accept it. And as I've said throughout this series, true faith always endures. So there's no possibility of unaccepting the covenant later, not if your faith was true in the first place. Furthermore, the Bible actually teaches that God already knows who will receive His new covenant. And that plays into this as well. God is so sure about those who will receive this covenant that it is said that they are predestined to receive it. We can debate over nuances of what this means and does not mean. But God makes His new covenant with those who will have faith in Him and His salvation, just like Abraham. In fact, the new covenant is reserved for precisely those who will be justified by faith, those whom God foreknew. And this cannot be changed if this could be changed or was dependent upon man, what, would we, what we would really have is a bilateral covenant doomed to failure. Thankfully, the new covenant is unilateral, which means God keeps it regardless. Only Jesus saves. We do not, in any respect, save ourselves. From the beginning, God is the one who established a covenant with Adam, Sealing that covenant by presumably sacrificing an animal to provide clothing to cover their nakedness, promising them a more permanent solution to sin in the Messiah as early as Genesis chapter 3. It was God who made a covenant with Noah, sealing his promise with the sign of the rainbow that the world would never again be destroyed by a flood, which is what the rainbow meant, by the way. 
It was God who made a covenant with Abraham, sealing it with signs like circumcision and the sacrificial lamb provided by God so that Isaac could live. It was God who further developed his covenant with his chosen people through Moses at Mount Sinai, sealing it with fire and smoke, a thunderous voice from heaven in the Ark of Covenant to house the Ten Commandments representing his very presence. It was God who came to David with a covenant, promising that his descendant would reign on the throne for all eternity, that descendant being Jesus Christ. All of these points in the history of the people of God were like phases in the development of of what is cumulatively called the Old Covenant. Most of you know that the Bible is divided in two parts between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant is contained in what we often call the Old Testament, Genesis through Malachi. And then there's the New Covenant, or what we often call the New Testament, Matthew through Revelation. By the way, the word testament is simply another word for covenant. The words are completely synonymous in this context. And so the important point is that our Bibles are divided into two larger agreements, really promises, initiated by God toward mankind. These two overarching covenants are quite distinct yet also connected. For millennia, the people of God lived under the old covenant. But in these latter days, we have been offered a new covenant. Guess which one is better? In chapter 8, verse 6, the writer of Hebrews answers that very question, saying, but now Christ has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. For that first covenant had been, if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. And then in verse 13, when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. What did the inspired author mean by saying the old covenant is ready to disappear? Considering this is like in the 60s AD. Why didn't he say that it had disappeared already? Well, as these words were written, the temple still stood in Jerusalem. And sacrifices were still being made by those who had not accepted the new covenant, those who were still stuck thinking that the old covenant was all they had to go on. At this time in history, the practices and the system of the old covenant were still hanging around, but not for long. The absolutely necessary center for all of this old covenant keeping was the temple in Jerusalem, which was completely destroyed in A.D. 70, possibly even within a year after the book of Hebrews was written. There are several prophetic statements in Hebrews as if the writer somehow knew that the temple was soon to be destroyed, and this is one of them. Of course, Jesus actually predicted that would happen in the lifetime of his audience, so it should not have been a surprise to anyone that the temple would be destroyed soon. Once it happened, the destruction of the temple should have made it even more clear that the old system, the old covenant, was now obsolete, as he says, that indeed the promised new covenant with God had begun. So again, today, We have a lot of scripture to deal with because the writer of Hebrews uses much ink to compare and contrast the old and new covenants, but this time I'm not going to um, read it all. Let me simply draw your attention to the listening guide inside your bulletin, and near the top you'll see listed all of the verses in Hebrews, at least the ones I could find, that specifically deal with the two covenants. I'm not going to cover these verses 
in detail. So I would encourage you to look more intently at them during your own Bible study throughout the week. You are studying your Bible throughout the week, right? What I've been doing so far this morning is giving you context, historical background, as well as a bit of summary of these verses where you will see that the writer of Hebrews continues his policy of comparison and contrast. This is why I titled this series, A Better Way, because the whole thing is written to compare the old way to the new way in order to make the case that the new way is better. This is certainly true when it comes to the case of the old and new covenants. The new covenant based on a faith relationship with Christ is better than the old way of what had become empty ritual and religion. That's the bottom line of these passages. Now, let's pull out a few key verses to make what seem to be the most important points. The first seven verses of chapter 9 repeat much of what we have already talked about several times in this series being a brief overview of the whole sacrificial religious system, that of the old covenant, that which was fulfilled in Christ and therefore is now obsolete. In these verses, which I will not read again today, the writer brings up this idea that the people were not previously allowed into the holy of holies, the most holy place that we've talked about, surrounded by that veil. They were not allowed into the presence of God. But then in verse 8, he says, the Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. So, the inspired author of Hebrews continues his method of comparison and contrast now between the old and new covenants. And starting with the old covenant, he says, the old covenant was not faultless because, and this is number one in your notes, it could not bridge the gap between God and man. The old covenant was not faultless because it could not bridge the gap between God and man. Verse 8 says, the way into the holy place has not yet, talking about before Christ, has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle, which signifies the temple, is still standing. He's kind of talking about the fact that these Hebrews find themselves in a time between times at this point in history. The temple is still standing, though it is about to be destroyed. And when it is gone, the sacrifices are going to cease, which is, in fact, exactly what happened. The author knows that all of what is continuing to happen in the temple is empty at this point, since Jesus has already torn the veil in two, remember from last week, even though the non-believing Jews are still going on like nothing has changed. But he's saying, not for long. Further, the author is saying that the old system of worship is only ever a symbol, pointing forward to, as he puts it, the present time. That is the time of Christ. Because, as he says, that old system of sacrifices could not make the worshiper perfect in conscience. Conscience. Okay, this is important. He's saying that the old way could not really take away sin. It was all designed rather to help them understand their need, to make them yearn in faith for the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior, and to foreshadow the truth that only He could ultimately bridge the gap between God and man. We've talked about this concept a lot in this series, so let's move on. Secondly, the old covenant was not faultless because it was never intended to be permanent. From chapter 9, verse 10, since they, referring back to the law and the sacrifices, really the old covenant, relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. 
From this verse, we see that the old covenant, particularly the Mosaic covenant, was never designed to be complete in itself. It was only part of the story, intended to serve a purpose until a future time when it would be what he calls reformed. An important point in the use of this word is the fact that what was a new covenant was not entirely new, but was remade into something better from out of what was old. The point is that God had always intended for the old covenant to be completed in Christ, which is why the old covenant always included a promise of future fulfillment. The new covenant was actually reformed from the old. This matters because in the new, in the new covenant, God was only finishing what had actually been a perfect plan from the start. The old covenant was not faultless only in the fact that it was it, it was was not faultless only in the fact that it was com- was incomplete. Its problem was it wasn't finished. See, this is why believing Jews who, who really understood the prophecies spent their time uh, looking forward to a Messiah, because they understood that the current covenant would not be complete or permanent until he fulfilled it. That something was missing, and the something was Jesus. Christ was the promised one, and it was he who would fulfill the previous covenant between God and his chosen people, thereby ushering in a new and better covenant. Now, I have to pause and ask you to think about exactly how Jesus did this, even though it will be a foreshadowing of the later part of this message. How did Jesus solve the problem of the Mosaic covenant? The problem being that people never could seem to keep their end of the deal, or that their conscience could never be made perfect, as it says in our text. Jesus solved the problem by completing humanity's part of the agreement. He fulfilled our part of this bilateral covenant, the one that had to do with the obedience to the law of God, essentially making it unilateral at that point. Jesus redeemed the Mosaic covenant by fulfilling the law of God. This is also part of why Jesus had to be a human being, of course. It's also why he had to be God. Jesus reformed the bilateral Mosaic covenant into a unilateral new covenant by completing our part of the original deal once and for all. Because of Jesus, all we have left to do is receive the gift being offered which is basically the forgiveness of sin. This is the grace which we must receive by faith. Since after allowing mankind to prove that we could not keep our part of the covenant, rather than shredding it like a broken contract, God came down to fulfill our part for us, just so that He could then also do what He always planned to do, to provide for us eternal life and a restored relationship with Him. Maybe we should say thank you it's that week, isn't it? There's something to be thankful for around the table <laughs> uh, this week. By the way, the prophets were always clear that the old covenant was not complete. To make this point, the writer of Hebrews quotes Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. He uses Old Testament Scripture to make his case that a New Testament was always expected, that the prophets had always understood that a new covenant was on the way, one which would be far better than the old one. We find this in chapter 8, verse 7 of our text, where the inspired author writes, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, and thus begins the quotation from the Old Testament prophet, Jeremiah, Jeremiah, 
Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. In many translations, you'll see those words in all caps, which, by the way, means that it is a quotation from the Old Testament, just as this is. In truth, most of the New Testament is only a further explanation of the Old Testament because the prophets were always seeing forward. And so they had known over half a millennium earlier that a new covenant was coming. See, the writer of Hebrews doesn't need to make a case out of thin air for the superiority of the new covenant. No, all he has to do is quote the respected prophet Jeremiah from over six centuries earlier. Now let's get into the reasons the new covenant is better. The new covenant is better because, number one, God is offering us permanent change. God is offering us permanent change. Still quoting Jeremiah, the writer of Hebrews continues, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant and I did not care for them says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. The problem with the old covenant was never on God's end. He was always waiting for the people to come back into covenant relationship, but they kept walking away from his care. That's why the prophet Zechariah wrote, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord. But often the people simply would not return. They were rather fond of living their lives for themselves. They preferred sin to God's covenant. Sound familiar? So what changed? Keep listening. A covenant is an agreement between God and man, but we miss what is special about a covenant if we think it is as simple as, if I do my part, God will do His part. Even in the case of a bilateral covenant like the Mosaic covenant, that's not exactly right. The difference between that kind of contractual thinking and the truth here is that with a covenant, we are talking about God offering us something wonderful out of His love for us. And He desperately wants us to receive what He is promising. God isn't sort of hoping we won't come through so that He can renege on the deal. No, it is simply that we have chosen to reject what He is offering. And out of respect for our own ability to choose, He he lets us. By the way, it is exactly the same when it comes to the topic of hell. In my opinion, individuals ultimately choose hell. God does not choose hell for people. God looks at it like this, as it says in our text, they did not continue in my covenant. They did not. The covenant is His You see, and from this we can determine that it was always still there on the table. They chose to walk away from it continually. God says, I continue to offer my very best, but they continue to reject the deal. He says, they thought their way was better and they left my offer on the table. It's kind of like the wayward son. Carry on my wayward son. Come on. You know that, right? Am I that old? All right, I love that song. I love that song. Somebody said yes. Was that you, Rhett? No, you wouldn't do that. It is kind of like the wayward son who goes out and uh, destroys his own life. It isn't a matter of dad no longer loving the son or dad no longer wanting to help the son, but it is that the son has gone his own way. The son has shunned the care of dad and left his goodness 
behind. The son has refused to continue in covenant relationship, although dad is still offering it. But see, the son's choices make it impossible for dad to provide the care he longs to give his child. And yet dad is always right where the son left him. Scanning the horizon for him to return, isn't he? Ready to run down the lane to embrace him. And of course, the son eventually does return, upon which the father receives him with joy because the covenant is still being offered. Some would say this parable is actually about a saved person who strays. But in my opinion, it's silly to try to nail down a parable to mean only one thing. And regardless, this, one, this parable illustrates, regardless of which way you take it, it illustrates the heart of God toward people. He wants them to come home and to live in the blessing of His covenant. What He doesn't want is for them to keep leaving again over and over. And this is where the new covenant changes everything. See, both Jeremiah and the writer of Hebrews are saying that this new covenant is better than the old back and forth stuff. How is it better? The new covenant is better because those who receive it will no longer want to go away. They will be changed. Do you see that in the text? They will not want to stray. They will desire to stay in covenant relationship with God. Even if they stray temporarily, they will quickly be drawn to return. See, under the new covenant, God's people are now changed from the inside out forever. And as we learned a few weeks ago, if someone is not changed from the inside out, then we can know that this person never truly embraced the new covenant of Christ in the first place because if they had, well then, they would have been changed, you see. This is one of the biggest reasons the new covenant is better. Look back at the text. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. What this means is that the new covenant includes the spiritual transformation that is necessary in order for a person to stay in covenant relationship with God. Hear this, as Romans chapter 8 puts it, those whom God justifies, He also glorifies. What He starts, He will finish. Because you see, this is a unilateral covenant. And that means that it is dependent upon God to complete it. Brothers and sisters, that right there is good news. Listen, when Jesus really comes in, He changes everything. He changes your mind, He changes your heart, He changes your life. As 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, So well, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Has that ever happened in your life, by the way? If not, you might want to do some soul-searching The new covenant is better because in Christ, God offers permanent change. Amen? Secondly, the new covenant is better because God is offering us a permanent relationship. Continuing verse 10, God says through the prophet Jeremiah, as quoted by the writer of Hebrews, and I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach everyone as fellow citizens and everyone as brothers saying, know the Lord for all will know me from the least to the greatest of them. Wow, if anybody wants to know where we get the idea that people can have a personal relationship with God, 
Simply point them to this portion of Scripture. Let me tell you something this morning. You can know God. You can know God. How crazy is that? How wonderful is that? And just so I know, I'm not losing it. If you have at least begun to experience knowing God in your life, would you say amen? See, it's not just me. Knowing, loving, and glorifying God are the ultimate ends of this life. God made Adam and Eve so we could know them, so they could know Him. God made people to know them. That's why we were created, to know God and to do life with God in companionship, whole thing. Raising kids for most of us, watching them grow up, investing in godly friendships for all of us, helping others come to know Him, learning to work hard, earning good things, helping those who need help in Jesus' name, eating and drinking and going on vacation, the pains, the joys, the tears, the laughter, it's all to be done with God. With God. Life with God. That's the new covenant, my friend. If you go back and read the verses we just read, you're going to get that out of it. Life with God. It's so much better. The new covenant is better because it is the offer of a permanent personal relationship with our loving Creator God. People under the Old Covenant generally did not have this opportunity. Under the Old Covenant, God remained distant for the most part, only breaking through at huge crossroad moments, crossroad moments in history, usually sending angels as His messengers. But now He has sent His Son, who then sent the Holy Spirit. See, this is how God made the New Covenant possible. He sent His only Son. And because He died on the cross, rising again, that in ascending back to heaven, He could send the Holy Spirit down to live in the cleansed hearts of all who believe. Indeed, on His way up, Jesus promised that this new and better covenant was on the way down. He said, I will ask the Father. In the, in the context, He's talking about, when I get back up there... <laughs> I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper, that He may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see Him or know Him, but you know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you, He's saying, in spirit. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live. You will also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. What is the difference in the new covenant? The difference is that in the new covenant, Yahweh, God, lives inside people. This does not make us little mini-gods, by the way. This is cults, you know, they spin off on things. We don't become gods ever. But what I will say, without equivocation, is this. God lives in me. That's, just, that's kind of hard to say, you know. You try it. God lives in me. It's, it's, I mean, really? 
Say that at work tomorrow at your desk to your co-workers. See what happens. Interestingly, interestingly, I've noticed that we believers often try to find other ways to articulate this truth because it's just too heavy for us to handle. But make no mistake, the Bible says in many places that the Holy Spirit, that is the Spirit of God, literally indwells the true Christian. The Bible also says that Christ lives in us, which means the Spirit of Christ who is the Holy Spirit. And so in, in that sense, Christ lives in us. We should know and be clear about the fact that while the triune nature of God is something we can never completely understand, one way or another, God, yes, God, lives within us. My friends, this is a level of relationship that was absolutely not offered in the Old Covenant. Do you understand that? This was all new with Jesus. This is new for us, and it's better, way better. Further, this also speaks to the fact that our relationship with God is permanent. Why? Because it is clear in the New Testament that the Spirit of God does not come and go from within us. As we have been learning, the Spirit seals us with Himself. This is an unbreakable seal, as we learned two weeks ago and again heard last week, that this seal of the Spirit is as unbreakable as the promise and purpose of God. Those who receive the Spirit are changed by the Spirit, and this change is as irrevocable as the Spirit Himself. See, the covenant we're talking about, this new covenant, is unilateral. This particular covenant, the one that means we are saved, is all up to God. And He will never fail to complete what He has promised. Now, let's think about this relationship part of the covenant just a little bit more. Think about knowing God. Still today, so many religious people miss this acting as if they were still under the old covenant rather than the new. Maybe I can keep God happy enough if I jump through a few religious hoops here and there. Maybe my pastor could say a prayer, or my priest could say a prayer for me, make things okay. Maybe if I give some money, or do this, or do that, God will let me into heaven when I die. How sad. The God of the universe went to great lengths to free you from this old way of thinking about religion. The new covenant means you can have a personal and permanent relationship with God Himself. He said, I will be their God and they will be my people. He said, from the least to the greatest of them, they will know me. Who will know Him? Those who accept this covenant by faith as they put their trust in Christ. From the least to the greatest, five-year-olds and 90-year-olds. Smart people and not-so-smart people. Rich people and poor people. Attractive people and not-so-attractive people. None of that matters anymore. Because whoever you are, you can know God. And if you can know God, what else matters? I mean, comparatively speaking, nothing is that big of a deal when the truth is that you know God. I assure you there's nothing better in life than learning to know and be known by God. This would seem to be self-evident that knowing God would be more important than anything else. And see, Jesus Christ already kept your end of the deal to make this possible. He did this for you. Won't you accept the covenant God is offering you? The new covenant is better because God is offering us permanent change and He is offering us a permanent relationship. Lastly, the new covenant is better because God is offering us permanent forgiveness. Verse 12, for I will be merciful to their iniquities 
and I will remember their sins no more. Iniquity comes from a root word that basically means failure to measure up. Our iniquities are shortcomings or failures before a holy God. Our sins are the things we do that he said not to do and the things we don't do that he said we should do. In the new covenant, God is offering us permanent forgiveness for both our sins and our iniquities. This is another huge difference between the two covenants. And what makes this incredible offer possible is nothing other than the shed blood of Christ. We'll be getting into that next week as we talk about a better sacrifice. But let's just think about permanent forgiveness for a minute and what this means. Do you really believe this is true? I will remember their sins no more, God says. We don't believe that. We don't. I don't think most of us believe that. We think God still remembers our worst sins, at least. We do. Some preachers even preach that you will still pay a price for your sins at the judgment. I wholeheartedly reject that. The Bema seat where believers will be judged is not a place where you will pay any price for your sin. You'll face judgment, yes, and you will be declared clean because of the blood of Jesus, the Lamb. Perhaps you will somehow see just exactly what Jesus has done for you. But listen, the more important point is that the price for your sin has already been paid. Jesus paid in full. Beyond this, the Bible said God doesn't even remember your sins. Are you hearing this? The posture of God toward you as a person who has put your trust in Christ is 100% mercy. God is merciful to your iniquities. He remembers your sins no more. As a recipient of the new covenant, through faith in Christ, everything against God that you have ever done or ever will do was nailed to the cross, and the penalty has been received by Him. All of your sins are forgiven and forgotten. And someone says, well, then I might as well go on sinning. Oh, good grief, grow up. And please go back to point number one. If you know Christ, you don't want to go on sinning. Why would you want to go on sinning? It just hurts you and other people. God has written His law into your mind and into your heart. You're permanently changed. If you know Jesus and the Holy Spirit lives in you, you don't really need me to tell you how terrible sin is or how much you would rather avoid it, regardless of the fact it's already forgotten by God. Haven't we all found out that when we stop sinning, it's like a light bulb comes on in our brains, we suddenly remember how much better it is to follow Christ? Believers don't go on sinning because we don't want to go on sinning. You should know this because as someone who has trusted Jesus, God has written His law into your heart and into your mind. If you think God is still up there wagging His finger and waiting to zap you when you sin, you're stuck with sort of an old covenant view of God. The Bible says your sin is washed as white as snow by the blood of Christ. It has been deleted and the trash can has been emptied. Your history has been wiped clean. 
God does not remember your sin. It's right there in the promise we read today, the heart of the new covenant, the point of the whole deal that you have received permanent forgiveness in Christ, which includes past, present, and future sins. To be clear, the sins you've committed since the point when you were saved are as forgotten by God as the ones from before. Otherwise, the cross wouldn't really be worth that much, would it? Unless you happen to die right after you were saved, I guess. No, but since the cross paid for it all, it is worth everything. Listen to me. If you've trusted in Christ, all of your sins are forgiven and forgotten. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And that scares people to death, doesn't it? Well, if I don't think God is waiting to punish me, When I mess up, I might just mess up more. It's time to grow up into the gospel of grace, my friend. Too many Christians are still motivated to be good by old covenant thinking, which is typically a poor motivator. It doesn't work anyway, does it? Be motivated instead by your own Holy Spirit-driven desire to be pure, a desire that God puts into your heart when you accept His new covenant in Christ. Now, let me clarify that confession of sin before God is still an important part of the believer's life. But sin is not to be confessed to avoid the ire of God. That specific sin that you need to confess in actuality is already forgiven. The reason it still needs to be confessed is so that it doesn't keep you from relating properly to God. Your guilt is unnecessary, and the way to get rid of it is to confess and agree with God about your sin. Confession is for you not for God. There's also the fact that God lovingly disciplines His children when we continue in sin. But to guide us, not to punish us, God's discipline is like a rod or a staff to a sheep. He simply shows us the way through the Holy Spirit, who the Bible says convicts us of sin in real time. Listen, God does see And he does discipline, but he does not go on remembering our sin. Again, it is not that God is blind to our sin or uncaring. That is not what I am saying. He sees, but he doesn't hold a grudge. God doesn't go on remembering your sins, nursing and rehearsing them or storing up punishment and wrath to be handed out later. Not under the new covenant, not if you've received it. No, if you know Jesus, God has forgiven and forgotten your sins, those of yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Believe that and let it change you. Picture this. Your child disobeys the rules and grabs a cookie out of the cookie jar when you aren't looking. You decide to let it go this time. Two days later, you've completely forgotten about it. What there was to forgive, you forgave. But two days later, your child comes to you out of the, out of the blue, confesses, and asks for your forgiveness. You had already forgiven and even forgotten, but when she confesses, what does it do for the child, and what does it do for your relationship? It helps her to grow, and it blesses your socks off. 
Of course, if you're a grandparent, you just put the cookie jar out, take the lid off, and look the other way. But that's... <laughs> don't miss the point of our text, even though I backtracked a bit to make sure you don't misinterpret my words. The main point is that the new covenant is so much better because God is offering us permanent forgiveness. Permanent forgiveness. Get that. Is that not incredible? Permanent forgiveness. Just as King David prophesied in Psalm 103, 12, our sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west. If you understand the globe, that means they are infinitely removed. The new covenant is on the table in front of you. God himself offers it to you. Maybe someone here today has never spiritually signed on the dotted line, as it were, to receive what God offers. You can do that with a simple prayer. God is offering you a new deal, a better deal. What do you say? If anyone's ready to receive the new covenant with Christ, pray with me now. And just tell him, God, I'm tired of trying on my own. I need to receive this new promise from you. I need Jesus to be my Savior. I need my sins to be forgiven and forgotten. I surrender. Take my life. Change my heart. Let me be saved today. Show me what that means as I take this small step of faith in your direction. I hope that if you prayed that today, you'll let me know so I can help you think about next steps. You can use that communication card or you can just talk to me or email me. But God, for the rest of uh, us, Lord, it's so easy to get pulled back into um, wrong ways of thinking. Lord, love is a much better motivator. So help us remember your love for us. Help us remember what you've done for us. As we think about Thanksgiving this week, and many of us like to share our things we're thankful for around the table, let us remember the greatest thing we have to be thankful for really is this new covenant and all that it means. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for eternal life that is promised to us. Help us to walk in the new life that is ours in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.